0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, We thought we would bring a bit of fun and start off with a quiz this morning.
1: Um, If you get all five questions right, there is uh, no price. But you know, you'll um, you'll get quite. There we go. That's much better, isn't it? Yeah. There's no prize, but you'll get wonderful respect from everybody in this whole auditorium, and particularly me and Rebecca. Um, so, question one: How much, in total, does the average family of four spend in a year? Hands up if you think it's A, thirty-seven thousand nine hundred eighty-four. Oh, a good two people. Uh, how much? Uh, how many have you think it's B, forty-five thousand four hundred thirty-two? Quite a lot of you. And C, 85,903. The answer is B. So the majority of you got that one right. Excellent. Good start. Um, Question two. How much does the average household spend in a week? Is it £372.97? Hands up. A few... B four hundred and fifty two pounds and twenty one pence. Or C five hundred and fifty four twenty. Most of you going for C. Oh, you're pretty good at this, aren't you? I thought these were hard. Rebecca, question three.
0: What percentage of a household's income goes on food and non alcoholic drinks? Hands up for A, six per cent. No one? B, 11%? Or C, 16%? Oh, you're letting yourselves down now. It was B, 11%. So well done for the few of you that did get that one right. Question four. What does the average household spend most on? Hands up for A, transport. Few hands. B, food. Food. C, holiday tickets and other recreational purposes. Purchases, even. Hands up. Pretty mixed. It is A, transport.
1: Has anyone got four from four?
0: Has anyone
1: actually, or are you just pretending? My wife has got her hand up, but she probably just saw the PowerPoint last night. And the final question, question five. How much do the average parents of two kids spend on alcohol bought to drink at home per year? (laughs) Is it £211? £342? Or C, £587. <laughs> it's quite a lot of parents for your hand up for C. Um, no comment. The answer is yes, you were correct. It is £587. Um, you might be glad to know that's the end of our quiz. Um, just uh, yeah, before we start, just a, a quick introduction. Um, this is part two of a two part series. So last week I looked at some overarching principles, some of the big picture behind the story of how we gain and maintain control over our money. It was recorded so if you've missed last week's then you hopefully this one will be as well. You can listen to them in the correct order at some point during this week. I looked at systemic poverty as one of the reasons why people might not be able to gain and maintain control over their money and this morning we're going to spend a bit of time looking at a more practical angle, more practical solutions for how we do gain control and maintain control of our money. I'm going to add the same caveat that i did last week we know that everybody sitting in front of me is in a different financial position some of you will be better off than others and so some of this won't be relevant to some of you um but i'm sure there'll be something for each of us to take away and we're also going to look at some overarching principles which regardless of levels of income should hopefully um help all of us regardless of our situation rebecca
0: So, how do we gain and maintain control of our money? I think the first principle is this, not to bury your head in the sand. Money can be a hard thing to talk about, to think about or to face up to. But I think it's important that we do and I'll explore why. We worked with a lady through our debt advice centre a while ago. She had a decent job and she had enough to live on but she was really struggling. She'd maxed out a few credit cards and was only just making the minimum payments every month. We had to help her face the issue head on, and we discovered that due to some mobility issues, she was unable to do a big supermarket shop, and she was going to the M&S or the Sainsbury's local near-house every day to buy food. She hadn't quite realised how much this was costing her, as severe anxiety was preventing her being able to work through the struggles with her money. One of our advisors sat down with her, went through her income and expenditure, and went through it step by step. She also wasn't very internet savvy and hadn't heard of online shopping. This meant that one of our advisors walked her through how to do an online shop, and she pretty much halved her food bill instantly. This had a real transformative impact on her and she was able to start paying off her debts. She's now sticking to her budget and is almost completely debt free. I think facing up to the reality of your finances is a good idea whatever your situation. Having a good grasp and awareness of your money is helpful to enable you to make wise financial choices regardless of your circumstances. I want to go through some really practical things and some good principles to help you gain and maintain control of your money. I'm only going to touch on each of these things, but for anyone who doesn't know, I run our advice centre here, so I spend a lot of my life talking about money and financial resilience. So if anyone's got any questions or wants me to go through anything, I'm more than happy to chat afterwards. The first really basic thing is to set a budget. If it's not something you already do, have a look at your income, your outgoings, write it all on paper, a simple Excel sheet, or there are some good online budget creation tools. The Money Advice Service has one where you can put it all in uh, on the internet and it will sort of calculate your budget for you. Be honest with yourself and realistic during this process. Think about what your spending is now and then you can work out if there's anything you want to change later on. A key thing that people often don't think about when preparing a budget is annual expenses. Christmas is on the 25th of December every single year. And it can seem challenging to plan in advance if you don't have very much money and it feels like you haven't got anything spare, or unnecessary if you have lots of money. But I think it's a good idea to be prepared and aware of what those annual events and big expenses are. It's easy to do all that, go through it as an academic exercise, and then hide your budget in the corner and ignore it. So how do we actually go about sticking to those budgets once we've created them? There are a few key methods of budgeting that I'm going to uh, explore with you now. The first one is known as give every pound a name. This is one for any real budgeting nerds like me. It requires some commitment and some time, but is a really helpful method if you want to get a really good grasp on your spending. In this method, you give every bit of income you have a job to do, normally in quite a detailed way, with categories like eating out, public transport, Netflix, rent. And then you track every bit of expenditure against these categories. I normally do this using a piece of software called You Need a Budget, which is what you can see well, the American version, anyway, on the screen. And then I export my bank statements into this software to track my spending. This is quite involved and won't be for everybody, but it might be helpful to use for a while to get a really good handle on what you're spending. Nathan Louise said that they used a free trial of it for a month just to track everything for a little while to get a good idea of their spending. Uh, Another way you could do this that's a bit similar is uh, use a bank called Monzo. Uh, Monzo is a bank account connected to an app, and every time you spend, it automatically categorizes it for you, and you can track budgets and set savings goals. The second method is cash-based budgeting. A slightly simpler concept, where after you've paid all of your household bills and set any saving aside, you withdraw your spending money for the week and either just make it last throughout that week or some people will put it into envelopes or to jars in certain different categories. This can be good in making spending feel really real, really physical and can be good if you are the kind of person that's tempted to overspend on debit or credit cards. And the last key principle is the 50-30-20 principle. This is the idea that you simply split your budget into three chunks. 50% on needs, essentials like rent, food, utilities. 30% on wants, going out, eating out, coffee on the way to work. And 20% on financial priorities, giving, saving, paying off debt. I'm aware this might not work for some people in London. Uh, My husband and I spend about 70% on our household income on the needs section because rent costs so much. But in that case, just alter the percentages and it becomes the 70-20-10 principle. I would also give a bit of a challenge that if you're going to follow this principle, we'll talk later about generosity, and I'd like to stretch seeing if you can stretch it so the financial priorities becomes the bigger chunk or at least equal to your wants section. Give every round a name, cash-based or 50-30-20 can all be helpful tools to help you maintain a budget or you can research and develop your own. The next area I want to just explore is weak spots. I'm sure we all have them when it comes to money, but it goes back to the don't bury your head in the sand thing. Let's face up to it. Do you buy a coffee on the way to work every day for the sake of it or need to have the nicest iPhone or another new pair of shoes? We easily get into bad habits without even thinking about it and I can definitely be guilty of this. In preparation for this talk, I was reading this book called Free by Mark Skandret which Danielle's actually used in a talk before. It explores principles for simple living and financial freedom. Mark talks about a concept of embracing voluntary limits within budgeting. Their family choose not to embrace consumerism, but instead impose limits on how much money they spend, even if they have more they could be spending. One of our debt advisors did something very similar to this. In debt advice, we have something called trigger figures. These are certain amounts and categories of spending, like groceries, And if you're spending more than a certain amount, it causes a trigger where a creditor might not accept an offer of repayment because they think you're spending too much and need to rein in your spending. Our advisor decided that it would be helpful to try and live by these amounts. They're modest but reasonable and she thought that she could save or give a lot more of her money if she chose to embrace a voluntary limit. The key here was about how the advisor's money was spent, not about how much she had. I'm gonna hand over to Nathan.
1: Rebecca said the key here was about how the advisors' money was spent and not how much they had. Um, this links us nicely into a um, Bible story this morning. Chris read to us from uh, Mark chapter 14, the story of an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. Um, this story is not only found in Mark, but it's also found in Matthew and in John, three of the Gospels, which were the name that we give to the three, uh, the four Accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament. And the other one, Luke has a similar story about an unknown woman who does a similar thing. Um, a quick point of order before I move on. Even though the woman doesn't have a name in Mark's version of the story, and I'll explain in a bit one of the reasons why I think that is. Um, in John, in the story in John, which is probably the same story told slightly differently, um, the woman is called Mary. She does have a name, and um, um, just because spending the next five minutes saying the woman or the unnamed woman doesn't exactly scream equality, I'm going to stick my theological neck out and I'm going to call her Mary. Um, now, when you first look at this story, you might think that it's the exact opposite of gaining control of your money and maintaining control of your money. Um, Verse 3 says, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? This could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. How is that gaining and maintaining control of your money, pouring a year's wages over somebody's feet? Maybe she should have followed the 50-30-20 rule and at least kept 20% back um, for selling to the poor. Um, How is that gaining and maintaining control of your money? Well, let's find out. These verses are found towards the end of the book of Mark, as they are in the accounts in Matthew and John. As we join the story, it's all starting to heat up a bit for Jesus. We've had the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where he's put the Romans' noses out of joint a little bit, um, The verses at the beginning of the bit that Chris read to us, at the beginning of chapter 14, are about how the chief priests and the teachers of the law are trying to decide when to kill Jesus. Important to note, thanks, that they're not talking about if they should kill Jesus, but when. And the verses at the end of the bit that we read from uh, verse 10 and 11 are also talking about this. The NRSV translation of the Bible even uses the same language. Verse 1 says the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Verse 11 says Judas began to look for an opportunity to betray him. This is done deliberately. Um, But in the middle of all of this, we find a story that doesn't seem to fit with the narrative. The story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet is nothing like what comes before, and it's nothing like what comes afterwards. Um, Theologians, much cleverer than me, call this a mark and sandwich. It's something that a literally tool that, that Mark uses quite a lot in his gospel. He'll introduce a story and move away from that story to tell you a different story and then come back to that original story. In this example, Mark is trying to show us the contrast between the, um, the church leaders, the religious leaders, Judas and Mary. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law at the beginning, and Judas at the end, were treacherous, underhanded, trying to find a way to stitch up Jesus. And then in the middle, there's this contrast This poor woman who doesn't even have a name. By rights, she should be the bad guy in this story. Her social standing is much lower. And verse 3 says that this meal is taking place at the home of a leper. And she is put up in comparison to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. One of the reasons that she doesn't have a name is because Mark's trying to show a contrast between the important people, the high priest, the rulers, and then this poor woman who isn't even well known enough for Mark to know her name. And yet we start and end this section with these two stories of betrayal. But in the middle, there's this wonderful woman who shows sacrificial faith. Mark is saying that she's the example to follow. Don't follow what's happened before. Don't follow what happens after. But remember Mary. How is Mary gaining and maintaining control of her money? Well, as Rebecca said about our debt advisor, the key here is not about how much money she has, but how she chooses to spend it. Mary doesn't follow the world's opinion of what is economically important. She chooses to spend her money on the thing that she values. One more thing about this passage before we go back to the practical tips, when Mary breaks the alabaster jar, some of the people present at the meal say, "What a waste of money that could have been sold and given to the poor." And Jesus says, "Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Mark 14:7 says this. Jesus said, "The poor you will always have with you." Now I've heard these words taken out of context a number of times in church services, to justify some pretty terrible theology. I've heard these words used as an explanation to why churches don't engage with any kind of social justice, any community work to relieve poverty. We should keep our focus on spiritual matters, on prayer, on preaching on a Sunday, because we're never going to fix these social problems. Even Jesus himself said, the poor you will always have with you. I've heard them justifying personal wealth. Rich Christians saying it's totally fine to spend all their money on themselves, on nice things, on getting the next thing that they need on on not giving anything to the church because there are always going to be some people who are rich and there are always going to be some people who are poor. Even Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. I've heard them justify churches that spend thousands on fancy lighting, fancy stages, fancy expensive chairs and iPads for everyone in the music group to have the chords to all of the songs. It's fine to spend all our money on things like that, on making the Sunday service more professional than running a food bank. Because, you know, Jesus himself said, the poor you will always have with you. I'm guessing you're not expecting me to agree with that, and you'd be right that I don't. Let's look very quickly, before I pass back to Rebecca, at the context of this verse. It's another one of those stories where we need to understand a bit of the context. I looked this up uh, on an online Bible, and you can see... Uh, highlighted there there's this little b next to the phrase and that links us to deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 11 so what is going on in deuteronomy chapter 15 well it explains the idea of releasing people from the debt they're in Um, verse 1 says this at the end of every seven years you must cancel debts pretty straightforward yeah the plan was that all debts were forgiven every seven years, which not only meant that everything was sorted every seven years, but that people lived a, differently, a, d- a totally different lifestyle within those seven years. What is the point in spending all of your time trying to accrue more wealth, accrue more stuff, if seven years later you're going to have to give it back? So people lived more generously. So debt is cancelled every seven years. People live more generously within those seven years. So, Deuteronomy 15.4 said, However, there need not be no poor people among you. There need be no poor among you. So, hang on, how, how does this work? Isn't that the complete opposite of what Jesus has just said in Mark 14? So, how is Jesus' words in Mark 14 linked to Deuteronomy 15? The problem is human nature debt release every seven years was the plan but unfortunately in practice as you'd imagine it didn't happen now the writer of deuteronomy was sensible enough to realize that unfortunately people don't live up to the ideal so in verse 11 the verse referred to by jesus it says this there will always be poor people in the land therefore i command you to be open-handed to your fellow israelites who are poor and needy in your land there will always be poor people in the land." I command you to be open-handed. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Jesus isn't saying it's okay that you'll always have poor people in your land. He goes on to say, you can help them anytime you want, anytime. In Deuteronomy, I command you to be open-handed. Generosity isn't an optional extra. It's central to what we believe. I command you to be open-handed.
0: The ideas that Nath has shared show of a radical faith and generosity, rooted in a God who commands us to be open-handed, to be generous. I think an important part of this is intentionality with our money, so that we are freed to be generous. Going back to Free, the book, It talks about a concept which is to name what matters to you. I think this is a really important concept to grasp hold of. And I actually want to tell a story about my parents who I think are a great example of this. And what generosity and in particular hospitality looked like. They talk about a time when they were first married and they were very broke. They could only afford to heat one small room in the corner of their flat and they had hardly any money at all. They still wanted to be generous and to be hospitable. So instead of being afraid and feeling like they didn't have enough, they let friends in, they all huddled around the heater in the one small room, and they ate cheese on toast. Now they're in a better financial position, and their hospitality looks like a three-course meal with wine at, for a burned supper, or a big barbecue in the summer. But I think their outlook has always been one of generosity and of hospitality. Regardless of their financial circumstances, they shared and they gave whatever they had, sometimes and often sacrificially. It's, not about, what they, it's about what they did with their money, not about what, how much they had. And they named what mattered to them. We're going to be celebrating harvest next week. And maybe we need to think about how we're going to give out of our plenty to share with those who haven't got enough. Similarly, Nace is going to talk later about our church finances and the reality that to achieve what we want to, to bring transformation to this community, it's going to require some radical generosity. Maybe there's a challenge in what we've talked about today to consider our financial priorities and the way we want to live. Looking again at the book, Mark explores a concept which is to bring our use of money into alignment with our deeper values and goals. He tells a story of some friends, a couple who had both inherited great wealth, but had chosen with that wealth to downsize their house, to run an older car, to work for a charity and to earn less money. And for them, being careful with their money, it looks like being hospitable, It looked like supporting local businesses. They maybe had a different outlook on what their needs were than the story of the person Nathan shared about last week who constantly felt the need and the pressure to get a bigger house, a bigger car, a bigger salary. There's a challenging quote from a Jesuit theologian who says, ''We read the gospel as if we had no money and we spend our money as if we know nothing of the gospel.'' We read the gospel as if we had no money, and we spend our money as if we know nothing of the gospel. If we want to live in a way that our reading of the gospel and our use of money align, then we have to be serious about this way of generosity. Nace spoke earlier about how Mary's generosity was based not on what the world thought was economically valuable, but on what she valued. What does this look like for us? It could look like trying to source your food sustainably. It could look like buying some much needed furniture for the Harvest for Hope house. It could look like increasing your giving to the church if you get a pay rise. Or finding a local bookstore rather than the quick fix of Amazon. Someone in the church recently was going on a holiday and needed a map and specifically went out of their way to visit traveling through the local bookshop on Lower Marsh rather than to press a button on the internet and order it through Amazon. Maybe it looks like hosting a big dinner party, maybe for some people who really need some company and to be shown some hospitality and some good company. The thing here is to name what matters to you and to try as best as we can to live and spend our money in full knowledge of the gospel. So to finish today, Gaining and maintaining control of our money can be hugely beneficial. Using budgeting methods can help us feel in control, relieve anxiety and help us prioritise. I'd really recommend taking some time to think through the practicalities of this. Sit down, make a budget. Nathan shared the five financial queries last week with everybody. Hopefully some of you will have taken a picture of them. Think about them, chat about them in your small groups or with your family and see if there's anything you think you need to realign. Having a grasp of the practicalities helps free us to live a radical faith, like the one of Mary, willing to be generous with everything she had. The challenge for us is how will we go away and live like her, and spend our money with full knowledge of the gospel. We'd like to leave you with a poem by Walter Brueggemann, which I hope will challenge and inspire you to help you name what matters to you. On our own, we conclude, there is not enough to go around. We are going to run short of money, of love, of grades, of publications, of sex, of beer, of members of years of life. We should seize the day, seize our goods, seize our neighbor's goods, because there is not enough to go around and in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. You come fleshed in Jesus.
1: And we watch while the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food we did not grow and life we did not invent. And future that is gift and gift and gift. And families and neighbors who sustain us when we did not deserve it. It dawns on us, late rather than soon, that you give food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. By your giving, break our cycles of imagined scarcity. Override our presumed deficits. Quiet our anxieties of lack, transform our perceptual fields to see the abundance, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing.
0: Sink your generosity deep into our lives, that your muchness may expose our false lack, that endlessly receiving we would endlessly give, so that the world may be made new without greedy lack, but only wonder, without coercive need, but only love, without destructive greed, but only praise, without aggression and invasiveness, all things new.